This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. In December 2018, we were saddened by the death of our colleague, teacher and friend, Professor Michael O'Neill. Just before he died, Michael had completed his fifth collection of poetry, Crash and Burn, published by ARC. So in March 2019, we were able to remember Michael by celebrating the launch of this posthumous new work, while also looking back at his earlier poetry and the poetry he cared for by other writers. You'll hear in turn from the poet Jamie McKendrick, Michael's colleagues Professor Stephen Reagan, Professor Jason Harding and Professor Mark Sandy, and, first of all, Dr Sarah Wooten. So, knew Michael for many years, and I know some of you in the audience will have known him for longer, some of you will have been inspired by his teaching and his supervision. Professor Michael O'Neill was the heart and soul, the lifeblood of the Department of English Studies for nearly 40 years. He was head of department twice and a driving force in the establishment and successful running of the Institute of Advanced Study here in Durham. Michael was the world authority on the works of Percy Bysshe Shelley and other romantic poets. The breadth of his prolific publication record is simply astonishing. He was also a distinguished award-winning poet and he published five collections of poems. He received an Eric Gregory Award, a Chumley Award and his collection Return of the Gift that came out last year received a special commendation from the Poetry Book Society. But as I've been finding over the last few months, no record of his achievements comes close to what Michael meant to those who knew him. Of the overwhelming number of moving tributes from academics across the world and from students past and present, certain characteristics recur. A keen intelligence, almost as a given, but this intelligence that was combined with an indivisible from kindness, generosity, wit, integrity and vigour. I personally benefited from all of those, as I know many people will have done here this evening. Michael's door was always open. Whatever concern I had, which he invariably then sorted out, or even to share a joke. And in fact, of the many things I'll miss about Michael, his sense of humour is top of the list. Michael fostered in others an abiding, often life-changing love of literature, and he ingrained a sense of loyalty and dedication. Michael, at poetry readings, was always eager to let an audience know what they were in for, and I'll follow in his footsteps. So we're marking this evening the publication of Michael's last collection, Crash and Burn, published with ARC, and we'll hear some poems from that collection this evening. We'll also be hearing some of Michael's poems from previous collections and some of the poems Michael cared for and which he drew inspiration from. So if you can bear with me, I'm going to speak for a little bit longer and then I'm going to hand over to the poet Jamie McKendrick and we'll then hear from Professor Barbara Ravelhofer 
And the second part of our evening will consist of readings from Professor Stephen Regan, Professor Jason Harding and Professor Mark Sanday. So I'm going to begin by reading a poem from Crash and Burn. And this is a poem from relatively early on in the collection. And it relates to uh, Michael's hospitalisation in November 2017. And this was at the end of his first round of preoperative chemotherapy. And I went to see him and he'd, he was very visibly unwell. Uh, and I spoke to the nurses who said, oh, you know, his, his white blood cell count is starting to, to rise. This is a good sign. But he's been rambling. You know, we don't really know what he's, what, what he's trying to say. And so I went in with much trepidation at the Michael I was going to find. And of course, immediately he wanted to hear all about the gossip in the department. <laughs> and he said, oh, I've brought in this copy of, of Milton. Um, and I've been reciting passages <laughs> of Paradise Lost. Um, and so, thus, the, the rambling. So... <laughs> This is a poem called View. It had a view, the room I was condemned and lucky to inhabit for two weeks. I'd move closer as my white cell count climbed to the window, read my Milton, no idea why I brought him, certainly bemused the nurses, and stare with a tired longing at the sky. Valombrosa, its fallen leaves a truth too much for me, recalled our honeymoon visit, the fictive sadnesses of distant youth, no longer bearable, as I turned to watch a car circle a roundabout and come back down the road it had seemed to leave behind. And yet, though sometimes uninspired, the view was still a view, spoke of a realm elsewhere in which light and sky might conjure a new series of manifestations, healing spaces, a glimpse of chance escape from illness, even a made-up Eden thronged by angels' faces. So the next poem I'd like to read is from Michael's collection of 2018, Return of the Gift. And this is a poem that was written in memory of Jonathan Wordsworth. And as some of you will know Jonathan Wordsworth was an inspiration for Michael's early days as an academic in Oxford and also he remained a lifelong mentor. And the reason why I chose this was because one of the things that's struck me since Michael's passing is that rereading his poems and his criticism is a way of continuing a conversation with Michael, albeit changed, but still a conversation about poetry. And there's a line in here where Michael voices Jonathan Wordsworth. And it reminded me of, um, I stopped sending Michael texts that merely said, how are you feeling? Uh, are you feeling better? And replace these with rather banal comments like, Keats is obviously a better poet than Shelley, isn't he? <laughs> and it got the required response. Um, so we'd have these, I mean, banal on my side, but Michael's responses were incredible, uh, enlightening. 
Um, so this is a poem, Maze, in memory of Jonathan Wordsworth. Rereading borders of vision, I'm led to try to rethread my spur a conversational phrase, the airy maze of our chat about poetry. Fishing for an opening, you might say, puzzled by your love of Shelley. Still, he's an artist. Off we would go, as you'd recite despair-quelling lines that had made you dare to test your daily irony, to draw light from where it hid, and fight, as you did, for what would lift the soul beyond ruins whose bells no longer toll towards a chasm or rift where mists and mountains lodge their gift. So my final poems, uh, the first is by uh, Emily Bronte. One of the highlights uh, of which there have been few of the last sort of 18 months was being asked to co-edit a new volume of Emily Bronte's poems uh, for CUP with Michael. And as any of you will know, when you are asked to do something with Michael, Michael just, the gusto with which Michael gets into a project is exemplary, unique, I think. So within a few months, we had already read between us, I think, pretty much all the criticism on Emily Bronte and many of the editions of uh, Bronte's poetry as well. Now, the poem I'm going to read is called To Imagination, published originally in 1846. And the reason for, for reading this poem is because actually a lot of what it says about the imagination, I think about Michael in some respects. And that idea for me that he loved about poetry its lyric beauty, but also often what he says about uh, the new series of manifestations in that poem view, the sense of the mobility of meaning in poets like Shelley and Byron. And it seems to me this is in Emily Bronte's To Imagination. When weary with the long day's care, an earthly change from pain to pain, and lost and ready to despair, thy kind voice calls me back again. O oh, my true friend, I am not lone, while thou canst speak with such a tone. So hopeless is the world without, the world within I doubly prize. Thy world where guile and hate and doubt and cold suspicion never rise, where thou and I and liberty have undisputed sovereignty. What matters it that all around danger and guilt and darkness lie, if but within our bosoms bound we hold a bright untroubled sky, warm with ten thousand mingled rays of suns that know no winter days. Reason, indeed, may oft complain for nature's sad reality, and tell the suffering heart how vain its cherished dreams must always be. And truth may rudely trample down the flowers of fancy newly blown. But thou art ever there to bring the hovering vision back, and breathe new glories o'er the blighted spring, and call a lovelier life from death, and whisper with a voice divine of real worlds as bright as thine. I trust not to thy phantom bliss, 
Yet still, in evening's quiet hour, with never-failing thankfulness, I welcome thee, benignant power, sure solacer of human cares, and sweeter hope when hope despairs. So my last poem will be the last few stanzas of Keats's famous ode, Ode to a Nightingale. And this is a poem written almost exactly 200 years ago. And I had the great privilege of being able to teach with Michael over the last sort of 18 months or so with Mark as well. And it was an education for me as well. I learned a great deal about Keats, even having written a book on him, I learned a very great deal about Keats along with the students. And what struck me was how lightly Michael held this prodigious knowledge and the warmth, generosity, the charm with which he taught, and it involved every single person in the room. So these are the last few stanzas of Ode to a Nightingale. Darkling I listen, and for many a time I have been half in love with easeful death called him soft names in many a mused rhyme, to take into the air my quiet breath. Now more than ever seems it rich to die, to cease upon the midnight with no pain, while thou art pouring forth thy soul abroad in such an ecstasy. Still wouldst thou sing, and I have ears in vain, to thy high requiem become a sod. Thou wast not born for death, immortal bird no hungry generations tread thee down the voice i hear this passing night was heard in ancient days by emperor and clown perhaps the self-same song that found a path through the sad heart of ruth when sick for home she stood in tears amid the alien corn the same that oft times hath charmed magic casements opening on the foam of perilous seas in fairy lands forlorn. Forlorn, the very word is like a bell to toll me back from thee to my soul self. Adieu, the fancy cannot cheat so well as she is famed to do deceiving elf. Adieu, adieu, thy plaintive anthem fades past the near meadows, over the still stream, up the hillside, and now tis buried deep in the next valley glades. Was it a vision or a waking dream? Fled is that music, do I wake or sleep? So our next speaker is going to be the poet Jamie McKendrick, and it's a very great pleasure to introduce Jamie. As I'm sure many of you will know, Jamie often read with Michael at poetry events at the Durham Literary Festival, among many others across the UK. Jamie has written six poetry collections and won many awards, including the Forward Prize and the Hawthornden Prize for Out There in 2012. His most recent collection of poems which came out with Faber at the end of last year is titled Anomaly. Thanks for the introduction. I'm, I'm greatly honoured to be here to speak uh, and to read some poems of Michael's. As it's well known, Michael is you know, one of Shelley's most brilliant, eminent uh, scholars. So I, the poems I'd like to begin with 
from the Ode to the West Wind, perhaps Shelley's most famous poem. I was going to read two, the last two, but I couldn't resist adding on the third, because if you're allowed a favourite within a sequence, the third is mine. So, <laughs> Thou who didst waken with his summer dreams the blue Mediterranean where he lay, lulled by the coil of his crystalline streams, beside a pumice isle in Bayer's Bay, and saw in sleep old palaces and towers quivering within the waves' intenser day, all overgrown with azure moss and flowers, so sweet the sense faints picturing them, thou <clears throat> for whose path the Atlantic's level powers cleave themselves into chasms, while far below the sea blooms and the oozy woods which wear the sapless foliage of the ocean know thy voice, <clears throat> and suddenly grow grey with fear, and tremble and despoil themselves, O oh, hear. For if I were a dead leaf thou mightest bear, if I were a swift cloud to fly with thee, a wave to pant beneath thy power and share the impulse of thy strength, only less free than thou, O oh, uncontrollable. If even I were as in my boyhood and could be the comrade of thy wanderings over heaven, as then, when to outstrip thy sky speed scarce seemed a vision. I would ne'er have striven as thus with thee in prayer in my sore need. O oh, lift me as a wave, a leaf, a cloud. I fall upon the thorns of life, I bleed. A heavy weight of ours has chained and bowed one too like thee, tameless and swift and proud. Five. Make me thy lyre, even as the forest is. What if my leaves are falling like its own? The tumult of thy mighty harmonies will take from both a deep, from both a deep autumnal tone, sweet though in sadness. Be thou fierce spirit, my spirit. Be thou me, impetuous one. Drive my dead thoughts over the universe like withered leaves to quicken a new birth. And by the incantation of this verse, scatter as from an unextinguished hearth, ashes and sparks, my words among mankind. Be through my lips to unawakened earth, the trumpet of a prophecy. O wind, if winter comes, can spring be far behind. I'm afraid I'm moving from the sublime to the far less sublime. I'm going to read one of my poems, which is written to Michael. And... It has the title Capochino, which sounds like cappuccino, but actually it's just Italian for a bowed head, Capochino. It comes in Canto 15 of the Inferno, as Dante is walking along with his teacher, looking down, because of the position they're in, uh, a Capochino, come uom che reverente vada, uh, like a man who goes reverently, with a reverent uh, disposition anyway. So anyway, that's the Capochino because I have the bowed head in it. Also, it's, it's a bit of a strand of reference. Anyway, it's to, in memory of Michael. It has a Shelley quotation from a poem I was reading, as from an unextinguished hearth. You might well have laughed to see me figure Prometheus as poet-professor, but those last weeks, with the eagle feasting on your liver, chained 
to your study bed, hedged in by books, two of your own as yet unbound. I saw the bowed head still lit with the fire you'd found. Not only... It's, it's Michael, my brother-in-law, but he's also my oldest friend, really, and I had the privilege of kind of knowing him from the age of about seven. So, as Alistair was saying, most importantly, uh, the students he's taught, I'd like to enrol myself uh, as an early student of Michael's for, from a very early age. He was two years or so older, but had a phenomenal knowledge, even as an adolescent. I mean, I never caught up, so... I've had a lifetime of that uh, uh, mentorship, if you like. Uh, the first poem I'm going to read is from his first collection. <clears throat> I also, you know, defected and lived quite in their house. But they had this boiler ro uh, room where we all ate, we were a big family. And there was this absolutely huge boiler. I've never seen anything like it in a house. It was like the kind of thing you get on an ocean liner. <laughs> it, it was completely irrelevant construction. A sort of Heath Robinson... Uh, ocean liner and uh, you know it was, a, it was a pit dug in the room where this huge thing went anyway so his poem is a, uh, a memory also that I have called Back Home the Boiler Room the new boiler croons contentedly dialed into loper no one likes its oil gorged forebear growled through talks at midnight part of the family but now my childhood might be dust beneath dynastic bikes, bus chairs. Slowly an aura disappears. Chip tiles image the fracturing past. <clears throat> I can still see my mother kneeling, scrubbing the floor when we first came. Compute the years, we are their sum. The boiler sings, recalling nothing. I'll read a poem from the next book, Wheel which is addressed to Daniel, his, uh, Michael's son, who unfortunately can't be here at the moment. <clears throat> but I think it's very typical of the kind of poem that grows out of a, an occasion. In some ways, I was just looking at Hardy's poems this morning from Moments of Vision. I was thinking that, yeah, there is a Shelleyan element to Michael, but he's a profoundly Hardian poet. The poems that he makes come out of particular occasions. They always um, they move out beyond them, but they, they have a very close tie to them. <clears throat> this, this is just one of many examples. And it's called God Talk. Can I take my toys to heaven? Out of the mouths of babes, we'll see. Does God have any friends like Paul and Graham? What, was, what has been happening at that nursery school? What happened to... It's been a long day, Dan. Sensing a lack of grip, you fling a stare that makes me knock my drink back, lift you up. Entangled somehow with a pirate tail, Dad's lowdown on the most high follows. Friends walk the plank. God saves them, doesn't he? A sect of two we shape a creed from golden angels and the Spanish main. Your bricks strewn around the room await ascension into some untoppling structure. Uh, this one, again, I'm curtailing of the full context, but it's a poem from The Return of the Gith called Care in Three Parts, and it's about his father and all the care, looking after, and the arrangements of care for him, the kind of things that many of us have had to go through looking after elderly parents. 
This is the third one. I'm, I'm sorry to miss the first two, but anyway. I've belted back to meet the new carers. You see them trooping up the drive and groan at blue uniforms and bossy strides. I laugh and beg, great sire, you will receive your latest subject with due uh, condescension. Your smile has more than an edge of a glint, but you acquiesce in signatures and live a Pudlian well-intentioned banter. The river ripples, I imagine, at the end of the road. There's plenty of time to get things sorted. I drive home across the Pennines, <clears throat> dodging shadows and lights, detours and night closures, my own sad, stupid drama starting up, a camera down the gullet soon, a diagnosis and a fate to cope with. But for the moment, freedom of a kind, freedom to speed past traffic cones and lorries, lumbering up the long inclines while headlamps duel through pixelated mist and ending seems a process one could almost get to light. The final poem is from a wonderful sequence at the end of the book called From the Cancer Diary. It's addressed to my sister Posy and it's called Sunday. When it's time, some time to find my notes for tomorrow's lecture, which it appears after the latest deferral, I'll be able after all to offer. When according to our five-year-old granddaughter, sage delighted by her new knowledge, God rested after creating the world, so many trees, in his own likeness and image. When wife and husband for 40 years we sit in the parkland like carvings of sorrow, almost at peace, and the medical mill ceases to turn, and for a while all seems as it was. Thank you. So hearing those uh, poems for Michael and uh, by Michael is a reminder of his unbelievable range and versatility as a, a writer and critic. I met Michael for the first time in 1992, and I can remember it very clearly because it was the bicentenary of Shelley's birth. And I'd organised a conference at which I invited Michael to speak on the same platform as Paul Foote, um, author of a then very controversial book called Red Shelley. Um, and they got on famously well. I was hoping for, for tension and uh, di dialogue, but um, they, they, they got on fantastically well. And uh, at the end, Jamie was there, and Tom Paulin. And over a few bottles of wine at the end of the night, we read Shelley and Michael read vast swathes of Vadenaeus with unflagging energy. It's too much of a, a challenge tonight for various re re reasons, so I'll read something much shorter, which is a, a Shakespeare sonnet. Michael, as you know, um, had a, a strong interest in poetic legacies, and he was working on... Shakespeare's legacy, what Shakespeare bequeathed to later poets, uh, Keats among them, but many modern poets as well. So I know the afterlife of Shakespeare was something that mattered to him very much, and th this is very much about afterlives. It's Sonnet 60. Like as the waves make towards the pebbled shore, so do our minutes hasten to their end each changing place with that which goes before. In sequent toil, all forwards 
do contend. Nativity, once in the main of light, crawls to maturity, wherewith being crowned, crooked eclipses against his glory fight, and time that gave doth now his gift confound. Time doth transfix the flourish set on youth, and delves the parallels in beauty's brow, feeds on the rarities of nature's truth, and nothing stands but for his scythe to mow. And yet to times in hope my verse shall stand, praising thy worth despite his cruel hand. When I came to work in the department in um, 2004, I'd lived here for many years previously, but one of the first things I taught was a Yates special topic uh, with, with Michael, and we taught it together. Sometimes I'd do a term, he'd do a term. The following year, we'd switch it round just to make it a bit more interesting for ourselves. And so, and so we, we went on, and that, uh, that module is still being taught by my colleague Barry Shields. It's had a, a long life. Yeats was obviously in Michael's pantheon of poets, you know, very, very highly regarded. Uh, one of the poems he loved was In Memory of Major Robert Gregory, and he especially loved the closing line where Yeats, having gathered friends together to mourn this young man, son of Lady Gregory, tells how a thought of that late death took all my heart for speech. I was thinking of those amazing lines. A thought of that late death took all my heart for speech. And Michael liked it because it appeared to be very casual. It appeared to be Yeats saying he was overwhelmed, unable to continue, lost for words. And Michael would say, it's all sleight of hand, you know. Uh, he's just got the perfect closing line for that great elegy. He, he just pulls, pulls it off. Um, Again, it's, it's, not, it's not a poem uh, to read this evening. So once again, I'm not going to read the poem I've just <laughs> described. I'm going, to, I'm going to read something else in, instead. A, an, another poem Michael loved, uh, the, the Wild Swans at Cool. The trees are in their autumn beauty. The woodland paths are dry. Under the October twilight, the water mirrors a still sky. Upon the brimming water, among the stones, a nine and fifty swans. The nineteenth autumn has come upon me since I first made my count. I saw before I had well finished all suddenly mount and scatter wheeling in great broken rings upon their clamorous wings. I have looked upon those brilliant creatures and now my heart is sore. All's changed since I hearing at twilight the first time on this shore, the bell beat of their wings above my head, trod with a lighter tread. Unwearied still, lover by lover, they paddle in the cold, companionable streams or climb the air. Their hearts have not grown old. Passion or conquest wander where they will, attend upon them still. But now they drift on the still water, mysterious, beautiful. Among what rushes will they build? 
By what lake's edge or pool Delight men's eyes When I awake some day To find they have flown away And then to close a, a poem by Michael uh, From Crash and Burn um, He mentions in this poem The death of a former student PhD student uh, who'd worked with him here at Durham. And in fact, the poem that immediately precedes it uh, is an elegy uh, for uh, that student. And it's um, an Easter poem of, of, of kinds. Stumble. A drizzling Easter Sunday. Resurrection off the agenda. And yet you've risen from your study's convalescent bed to drag this new grief up the street. You track with an invalid's slowness a route you've known for years. Each decade blows away like a rain-surrounded vacuum. You watch head off behind you as your feet move forward, testing out the lung they had to deflate, ribs they had to spread and break. You're still breathing, though, and like that young woman whose loss has shaken you, almost made you shake, for whom the weathers turned elegiac, while out of puff you imagine you're teaching yourself futile persistence, how to stumble on. And we'll leave it there, and I'm going to call on my colleague Jason Hardy now. Uh, when I arrived at Durham a dozen years ago, um, Michael O'Neill appeared like the epitome of English studies at Durham. Um, I know that Sir Robert Carver, who's been researching for many years uh, a history of English at Durham, numbers Michael as one of the two most significant figures in shaping the department that we inherit and enjoy and share. And yet over long conversations with Michael over many years, in the Half Moon pub initially, that's where I used to most often meet him, uh, and then when I moved to Hogarth House, long conversations with him and discern a sense of Michael, um, complex man, and a man who sometimes would be out of step, as it were, while at home. Um, the first poem I'm going to read is a poem where Michael reflects upon his home city of Liverpool, uh, and it's called Outside. It has the most wonderful evocation of something that is a vanished phenomenon, the phenomenon of being wrapped in conversation in a smoke-filled pub. Outside. Our Liverpool Catholic background. We boast it like a badge, but don't share the nasal twang which warms this pub to life. Just open your mouth, and it's there, the spirit of a city. You're a conjurer. I'm spellbound. Whisked back years to coffee bars, bistros, wherever you chance on, I seem to be watching rings of smoke, coolly lassoing tranced moments, while faces moon round tables. And I still sit apart like a spy whose cover's blown, fixated on a desk where a boy gets by heart his latest lesson. You don't speak like us. Michael's next two published collections um, deal with a subject that his beloved romantic, many of his beloved romantic poets never had to deal with, and uh, that's middle age. 
Um, <laughs> these two collections have lots of poems which celebrate the pleasure of his burgeoning family. Uh, they also deal with his ambivalent, complex relationship with something that a, a wonderful poem in Wheel calls the opulent drabness, the world of opulent drabness and lack of event, where you might, with luck, survive the while. Uh, and I perhaps maliciously choose to interpret that as a reference to the life of an academic. Um, the world of opulent drabness and lack of event. Um, but this balanced sense of highs and lows, I think, comes across very powerfully in a poem I'm going to read from Will, the same collection called Hope. Hope, of course, being one of the three Christian charities, symbolised by the anchor which tethers the soul. Hope. Hope, that anchor trailing through space, that long deferred doth make the something sick, that hollers you out like an illness. Hope, there's not a week when you don't meet one another, casually, have a brief chat, change tack, and wander off back towards the fleecy clouds you sometimes glimpse, still hanging on, just as twilight wants to speak a little darkly. Hope, the travelling torch, game companion, who, when the cold bites, ventures the view that you can be too much in the sun, who, neck in sand, will have nothing to do with socks and has only good in mind for you. It's a poem that resonates with my years spent with Michael. Um, I think of Michael as a, in that romantic tradition with the vertiginous swoops and plunges of the heart, like the poets he admired, Shelley, Hart Crane, Yeats, uh, Dante. Also a poet of romantic longing, and this poem talks about Zainzuk. Um, that sort of yearning sense of hope measured with the potential for despair. Uh, and the last poem I'm going to read places Michael at the heart of Durham, at a literal and metaphorical crossroads that I'm sure many of you will recognise, the, the precise location, but it's also a symbolic and spiritual location. He's gazing up, facing two ways, gazing up towards the cathedral, down towards the Half Moon pub, I think. <laughs> um, the poem's called Reverie, and it's a melancholy mood that's captured, uh, a moment of heightened awareness. The poem calls it um, a brown study. And Michael um, is thinking about chords of a street busker playing a song. It's a song by Fleetwood Mac called Man of the World. I don't know if you know it. Um, so the chords of this song trigger these reflections. It's a song about a successful man, a man of the world, who wouldn't swap his place with anybody else. And yet, rather sort of startlingly and surprisingly, um, a line of this song reflects upon the moments when he, he feels it would have been better not to have been born. Reverie. I was leaning on a rail at the bottom of steps, where two streets converge, one heading towards stone and sanctity, the other towards lecture theatres and pubs. I was waiting and waiting, and no one showed the wrong day. 
until I drifted off, fell into a reverie, a brown study, and seemed to slide outside allotted purposes, as body after body scurried, pressed and hurried towards the next stage. Music began to play. Beside me, a young busker with harmonica and guitar hummed some bowie, strumming shyly at first, though deftly, then stopped, then riffed chords of a lost song that took me right back. Shall I tell you about my life? No one I'd rather be, but I just wish that I'd never. Languorous, electronic swoops, lifts and licks that dropped and left me in the dismal, pure palace vacuum of teenage Zensukt, waiting for it to unfurl, waiting. Thank you. I had the pleasure and privilege of travelling in the new year, on the 2nd of January to Chicago, to go and receive on Michael's behalf, posthumously, his uh, Distinguished Scholars Award from the Keith Shelley Association of America. It was January, I guess I was lucky and unlucky. I so much wanted Michael to be with me, and he was not able to be so. I was lucky in the sense of the weather, because it was before the polar storm struck Chicago, and I escaped um, relatively unscathed from that. But one of the poems I read at that awards dinner was Janus, and of course it's a January poem, so I thought I'd start with that. It's from Return of the Gift. James, of course, is the god that looks many ways. That doesn't do it, then Janitor, I guess, will. Someone that looks after doors and doorways that open in all directions. And this is a poem, uh, I think, speaks too to Michael's lifetime fascination with Shelley. Uh, it is both a hopeful poem, but a poem that is tinged with a certain sense of scepticism. It has aspirations to the positive of the transcendent and the ideal it's one that also uh, is tinged with that sceptical, well, maybe that isn't quite so. It's in two parts. You can guess how the two parts go, I guess. Part one. Scimitar in the January sky. It starts again. The moon as resurgent emblem. Renewal, so it's tacit lunar hum. Might be saying with mirthless irony, beckons. Well, why not wax as well as wane? Part two. Scimitar and the frost clear sky, seeming to cut its own shape stroke by stroke until it hangs there above us, staring down like a painting by a cold-eyed master monster who has foreseen more than we can without flinching bear to contemplate the thought of. So that's from Return of the Gift. I've done something very un esque I realise. I didn't let you know what you were in for. I do apologise. <laughs> I, I was going to say I'm going to read three poems by Michael and one extract from Shelley's Adonais. What is served next is, is the second of Michael's and I'll end by reading the last poem that Michael wrote, that is in Crush and Burn. This is section five or five of a sequence of poems that Michael wrote that appears in Return of the Gift on hold 
uh, it is courses from the Cancer Diary sequence. A few strides from my carriage at King's Cross, and the line jumps out alive in front of me, goes through me like a spear of white fire, when I have fears that I may cease to be. All weekend, mine, the gap is in my mind, and the gap widens and widens. The gap between the swallows cheerily laughing and swallowing Jack Horner's pub, and a malignant, structured food pipe walking freely as though it had a right to be a person. I make an excuse and leave quickly, and breathe the unsolacing, bracing Bloomsbury air while the day turns inside out, when I of fears cease to be. Put it on hold, I tell myself. Put it all on hold. And of course the line that strikes the speaker of that poem, I'm sure struck Michael, is that of Keats's sonnet, and I have fears that I may cease to be. And that leads me to the close. I'm not going to read the whole of it, don't worry. But I will say one or two things about the closing stanzas of Adelaide's one of the poems I'm sure Shelley has in mind, as Michael had in mind, certainly in the last stanza, is Keats's When I Have Fears That I May Cease To Be. It's a poem that ends on the edge of a shoreline, a shoreline that is both geographical but also existential. It is a poem that presses forward for a persuasive reason that life uh, itself is death and that the alternative death itself is life. It's a poem in typical Shelleyan mode, perhaps as uh, as James uh, Michael's poem suggests, that doesn't quite trust its conviction. It, it wants to persuade uh, us as readers, partly to save Adonais, the embodiment of Keats, for all posterity, partly to save Shelley himself for all posterity, that that figure of Adonais will uh, attain a sense of eternity. But it's a poem that also realises the difficulties um, in that. And, and to whom do we trust our, our legacy, our posterity, anyway, and what control do we have over it? In its closing stanza, as well as the Keats allusion to, to that sonnet that uh, Michael mentions um, in, in On Hold, there are many other things too. There's a self-allusion to the poem that Jamie, by extract that Jamie read so wonderfully well earlier on, to Ode to the West Wind, that final stanza starts with the breath whose might I have evoked in song. So Shelley is kind of alluding back to his own anxieties about posterity and about where his poetic legacy might rest, where his leaves, both the, the leaves of the autumn but also the pages of the words that he's written, may finally uh, reside. It's also uh, typically of Shelley, it's alluding to Dante II, Canto II of Purgatory, and a reworking a wonderful image in which Dante admonishes against going out to the open sea, where here, existentially, um, spatially, Shelley presses for the alternative that we have to brave the dark and turbulent waters before us. I'll just re read the three final stanzas of Adonais. Why linger? Why turn back? Why shrink, my heart? Thy hopes are gone before from all things here. They have departed, thou shouldst now depart. A light is passed from the revolving year. And man and woman, and what is still is dear, attracts to crash, repels to make thee wither, 
The soft sky smiles, the low wind whispers near. Tis Adonais calls, oh, hasten thither, no more that life divide what death can join together. That light, whose smile kindles the universe, that beauty in which all things work and move, that benediction which the eclipsing curse of birth can quench not, the sustaining love which through the web of being blindly wove by man and beast and earth and air and sea, burns bright or dim, as each are mirrors of the far for which all thirst now beams on me, consuming the last clouds of cold mortality. The breath whose bite I have evoked in song descends on me, my spirit's bark is driven far from the shore, far from the trembling throng, whose sails were never to the tempest given, the massy earth and spherid skies are riven, I am borne darkling, fearfully afar, whilst burning through the inmost veil of heaven, the soul of Adonais like a star, beacons from the abode where the eternal are. Going to close with the last poem that Michael wrote, as far as I'm aware. It speaks, I, I think, appropriately because it's also, I understand the last lecture, uh, the subject of that lecture was Hamlet, and he gave in Durham. It appears in Crash and Burn. Good night, sweet prince. And yet it can't be good. A night so needed and so thick with blood. Good night sweet prince, although you weren't so sweet, when one undid the other, love and hate. But if the rest is silence, it's because you fought our hero for a space, a pause when the war between opposites might be suspended in a form of purgatory. You bad dreams saved you, saved us with you too. You looked from plot to life and dared to leap, or dared us to think we might leap or sleep, or even dream, imagining a jewel, to all that's dampened down on what's gone before, the far, the ignorant, turbulent far.